Chapter Nine, Part Five of Five of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vicki Rands, Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Week. Section Sixteen. On the fifth of December, the day before the House organized. Lincoln wrote me a letter about our fee in a lawsuit and reported the result of the Whig caucus the night before. On the 13th, he wrote again, Dear William, your letter advising me of the receipt of our fee in the bank case is just received, and I don't expect to hear another as good a piece of news from Springfield while I am away. He then directed me from the proceeds of this fee to pay a debt at the bank and out of the balance left to settle sundry dry goods and grocery bills. The modest tone of the last paragraph is its most striking feature. As you are all so anxious for me to distinguish myself, he said, I have concluded to do so before long. January 8, he writes, As to speech-making, by way of getting the hang of the house, I made a little speech two or three days ago on a post-office question of no general interest. I find, speaking here and elsewhere about the same thing, I was about as badly scared and no worse as I am when I speak in court. I expect to make one within a week or two, in which I hope to succeed well enough to wish you to see it. Meanwhile, in recognition of the assurances I had sent him from friends who desire to approve his course by a re-election, he says, it is very pleasant to me to learn from you that there are some who desire that I should be re-elected. I most heartily thank them for the kind partiality, and I can say, as Mr. Clay said of the annexation of Texas, that personally I would not object to a re-election, although I thought at the time, and still think, it would be quite as well for me to return to the law at the end of a single term. I made the declaration that I would not be a candidate again, more from a wish to deal fairly with others, to keep peace among our friends, and to keep the district from going to the enemy than for any cause personal to myself, so that if it should happen that nobody else wishes to be elected, I could not refuse the people the right of sending me again, but to enter myself as a competitor of others, or to authorize any one so to enter me, is what my word and honor forbid. His announcement of a willingness to accept a re-election, if tendered him by the people, was altogether unnecessary, for within a few days after this letter was written, his constituents began to manifest symptoms of grave disapproval of his course on the Mexican war question. His position on this subject was evidenced by certain resolutions offered by him in the House three weeks before. These latter were called the Spot Resolutions, and they and the speech which followed on the 12th of January in support of them not only sealed Lincoln's doom as a congressman, but in my opinion lost the district to the Whigs in 1848 when Judge Logan had succeeded at last in obtaining the nomination although differing with the president as to the justice or even propriety of a war with mexico lincoln was not unwilling to vote and with the majority of his party did vote the supplies necessary to carry it on he did this however with great reluctance protesting all the while 
that the war was unnecessarily and unconstitutionally begun by the president the spot resolutions which served as a text for his speech on the twelfth of january and which caused such unwonted annoyance in the ranks of his constituents were a series following a preamble loaded with quotations from the president's messages these resolutions required the president to inform the house first whether the spot on which the blood of our citizens was shed as in his messages declared was or was not within the territory of spain at least after the treaty of eighteen nineteen until the mexican revolution second whether that spot is or is not within the territory which was wrested from spain by the revolutionary government of mexico third whether that spot is or is not within a settlement of people which settlement has existed ever since long before the texas revolution and until its inhabitants fled before the approach of the united states army there were eight of these interrogatories but it is only necessary to reproduce the three which foreshadowed the position lincoln was then intending to assume on the twelfth of january as before stated he followed them up with a carefully prepared and well-arranged speech in which he made a severe arraignment of president polk and justified the pertinence and propriety of the inquiries he had a few days before addressed to him the speech is too long for insertion here it was constructed much after the manner of a legal argument reviewing the evidence furnished by the president in his various messages he undertook to smoke him out with his let the president answer the interrogatories i proposed as before mentioned or other similar ones let him answer fully fairly candidly let him answer with facts not with arguments let him remember he sits where washington sat and so remembering let him answer as washington would answer as the nation should not and the almighty will not be evaded so let him attempt no evasion no equivocation and if so answering can show this soil was ours where the first blood of the war was shed that it was not within an inhabited country or if within such that the inhabitants had submitted themselves to the civil authority of texas or of the united states and that the same is true of the site of fort brown then i am with him for his justification but if he cannot or will not do this if on any pretense or no pretense he shall refuse or admit it then i shall be fully convinced of what i more than suspect already that he is deeply conscious of being in the wrong that he feels the blood of this war like the blood of abel is crying to heaven against him that he ordered general taylor into the midst of a peaceful mexican settlement purposely to bring on a war that originally having some strong motive which i will not now stop to give my opinion concerning to involve the countries in a war and trusting to escape scrutiny by fixing the public gaze upon the exceeding brightness of military glory that attractive rainbow that rises in showers of blood that serpent's eye that charms to destroy he plunged into it and has swept on and on till disappointed in his calculation of the ease with which mexico might be subdued he now finds himself he knows not where he is a bewildered confounded and miserably perplexed man god grant that he may be able to show that there is not something about his conscience more painful than all his mental perplexity 
the speech however clear may have been its reasoning however rich in illustration in restrained and burning earnestness yet was unsuccessful in smoking out the president he remained within the official seclusion his position gave him and declined to answer in fact it is doubtless true that lincoln anticipated no response but simply took that means of defining clearly his own position on the nineteenth of the current month having occasion to write to me with reference to a note with which one of our clients one lewis candler had been annoying him not the least of which annoyance he complains is his cursed unreadable and ungodly handwriting he adds a line in which with noticeable modesty he informs me i have made a speech a copy of which i send you by mail he doubtless felt he was taking rather advanced and perhaps questionable ground and so he was for very soon after murmurs of dissatisfaction began to run through the whig ranks i did not as some of lincoln's biographers would have their readers believe inaugurate this feeling of dissatisfaction on the contrary as the law partner of the congressman and as his ardent admirer i discouraged the defection all i could still when i listened to the comments of his friends everywhere after the delivery of his speech i felt that he had made a mistake i therefore wrote him to that effect at the same time giving him my own views which i knew were in full accord with the views of his whig constituents my argument in substance was that the president of the united states is commander-in-chief of the army and navy that as such commander it was his duty in the absence of congress if the country was about to be invaded and armies were organized in mexico for that purpose to go if necessary into the very heart of mexico and prevent the invasion i argued further that it would be a crime in the executive to let the country be invaded in the least degree the action of the president was a necessity and under a similar necessity years afterward mr lincoln himself emancipated the slaves although he had no special power under the constitution to do so in later days in what is called the hodges letter concerning the freedom of the slaves he used this language i felt that measures otherwise unconstitutional might become lawful by becoming indispensable briefly stated that was the strain of my argument my judgment was formed on the law of nations and of war if the facts were as i believed them and my premises correct then i assumed that the president's acts became lawful by becoming indispensable february first he wrote me dear william you fear that you and i disagree about the war i regret this not because of any fear we shall remain disagreed after you have read this letter but because if you misunderstand i fear other good friends may also speaking of his vote in favor of the amendment to the supply bill proposed by george ashman of massachusetts he continues that vote affirms that the war was unnecessarily and unconstitutionally commenced by the president and i will stake my life that if you had been in my place you would have voted just as i did would you have voted what you felt and knew to be a lie i know you would not would you have gone out of the house skulked the vote i expect not if you had skulked one vote 
you would have had to skulk many more before the close of the session richardson's resolutions introduced before i made any move or gave any vote upon the subject makes the direct question of the justice of the war so that no man can be silent if he would you are compelled to speak and your only alternative is to tell the truth or tell a lie i cannot doubt which you would do i do not mean this letter for the public but for you before it reaches you you will have seen and read my pamphlet speech and perhaps have been scared anew by it after you get over your scare read it over again sentence by sentence and tell me honestly what you think of it i condensed all i could for fear of being cut off by the hour rule and when i got through i had spoken but forty-five minutes yours forever abraham lincoln i digress from the mexican war subject long enough to insert because in the order of time it belongs here a characteristic letter which he wrote me regarding a man who was destined at a later day to play a far different role in the national drama here it is washington february second eighteen forty eight dear william i just take up my pen to say that mr stevens of georgia a little slim pale-faced consumptive man with a voice like logan's has just concluded the very best speech of an hour's length i ever heard my old withered dry eyes are full of tears yet if he writes it out anything like he delivered it our people shall see a good many copies of it yours truly abraham lincoln to william h herndon esq february fifteenth he wrote me again in criticism of the president's invasion of foreign soil he still believed the executive had exceeded the limit of his authority the provision of the constitution giving the war-making power to congress he insists was dictated as i understand it by the following reasons kings had always been involving and impoverishing their people in wars pretending generally if not always that the good of the people was the object this our convention understood to be the most oppressive of all kingly oppressions and they resolved to so frame the constitution that no one man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us but your view destroys the whole matter and places our president where kings have always stood in june the whigs met in national convention at philadelphia to nominate a candidate for president lincoln attended as a delegate he advocated the nomination of taylor because of his belief that he could be elected and was correspondingly adverse to clay because of the latter's signal defeat in eighteen forty four in a letter from washington a few days after the convention he predicts the election of old ruff he says in my opinion we shall have a most overwhelming glorious triumph one unmistakable sign is that all the odds and ends are with us barn burners native americans tyler men disappointed office-seeking locofocos and the lord knows what not taylor's nomination takes the locos on the blind side it turns the war thunder against them the war is now to them the gallows of Haman, which they built for us and on which they are doomed to be hanged themselves meanwhile in spite of the hopeful view lincoln seemed to take of the prospect things in his own district were in exceedingly bad repair 
i could not refrain from apprising him of the extensive defections from the party ranks and the injury his course was doing him my object in thus writing to him was not to threaten him lincoln was not a man who could be successfully threatened one had to approach him from a different direction i warned him of public disappointment over his course and i earnestly desired to prevent him from committing what i believed to be political suicide june twenty second he answered a letter i had written him on the fifteenth he had just returned from a whig caucus held in relation to the coming presidential election the whole field of the nation was scanned all is high hope and confidence he said exultingly illinois is expected to better her condition in this race under these circumstances judge how heart-rending it was to come to my room and find and read your discouraging letter of the fifteenth but still he does not despair now as to the young men he says you must not wait to be brought forward by the older men for instance do you suppose that i should ever have got into notice if i had waited to be hunted up and pushed forward by older men you young men get together and form a rough and ready club and have regular meetings and speeches take in everybody that you can get as you go along gather up all the shrewd wild boys about town whether just of age or a little under age let every one play the part he can play best some speak some sing and all halloo your meetings will be of evenings the older men and the women will go to hear you so that it will not only contribute to the election of old zack but will be an interesting pastime and improving to the faculties of all engaged he was evidently endeavouring through me to rouse up all the enthusiasm among the youth of springfield possible under the circumstances but i was disposed to take a dispirited view of the situation and therefore was not easily warmed up i felt at this time somewhat in advance of its occurrence the death throes of the whig party i did not conceal my suspicions and one of the springfield papers gave my sentiments liberal quotation in its columns i felt gloomy over the prospect and cut out these newspaper slips and sent them to lincoln accompanying these i wrote him a letter equally melancholy in tone in which among other things i reflected severely on the stubbornness and bad judgment of the old fossils in the party who were constantly holding the young men back this brought from him a letter july tenth eighteen forty eight which is so clearly lincolnian and so full of plain philosophy that i copy it in full not the least singular of all is his allusion to himself as an old man although he had scarcely passed his thirty-ninth year washington july tenth eighteen forty eight dear william your letter covering the newspaper slips was received last night the subject of that letter is exceedingly painful to me and i cannot but think there is some mistake in your impression of the motives of the old men i suppose i am now one of the old men and i declare on my veracity which i think is good with you that nothing could afford me more satisfaction than to learn that you and others of my young friends at home were doing battle in the contest and endearing themselves to the people and taking a stand 
far above any i have ever been able to reach in their admiration i cannot conceive that other men feel differently of course i cannot demonstrate what i say but i was young once and i am sure i was never ungenerously thrust back i hardly know what to say the way for a young man to rise is to improve himself every way he can never suspecting that anybody wishes to hinder him allow me to assure you that suspicion and jealousy never did help any man in any situation there may sometimes be ungenerous attempts to keep a young man down and they will succeed too if he allows his mind to be diverted from its true channel to brood over the attempted injury cast about and see if this feeling has not injured every person you have ever known to fall into it now in what i have said i am sure you will suspect nothing but sincere friendship i would save you from a fatal error you have been a laborious studious young man you are far better informed on all subjects than i ever have been you cannot fail in any laudable object unless you allow your mind to be improperly directed i have some the advantage of you in the world's experience merely by being older and it is this that induces me to advise your friend as ever abraham lincoln before the close of the congressional session he made two more speeches one of these which he hastened to send home in pamphlet form and which he supposes nobody will read was devoted to the familiar subject of internal improvements and deserves only passing mention the other delivered on the twenty seventh of july was in its way a masterpiece and it is no stretch of the truth to say that while intended simply as a campaign document and devoid of any effort at classic oratory it was perhaps one of the best speeches of the session it is too extended for insertion here without abridgment but one who reads it will lay it down convinced that lincoln's ascendancy for a quarter of a century among the political spirits in illinois was by no means an accident neither will the reader wonder that douglas with all his forensic ability averted as long as he could a contest with a man whose plain analytical reasoning was not less potent than his mingled drollery and character were effective the speech in the main is an arraignment of general cass the democratic candidate for president who had already achieved great renown in the political world principally on account of his career as a soldier in the war of eighteen twelve and is a triumphant vindication of his whig opponent general taylor who seemed to have had a less extensive knowledge of civil than of military affairs and was discreetly silent about both lincoln caricatured the military pretensions of the democratic candidate in picturesque style this latter section of the speech has heretofore been omitted by most of mr lincoln's biographers because of its glaring inappropriateness as a congressional effort i have always failed to see wherein its comparison with scores of others delivered in the halls of congress since that time could in any way detract from the fame of mr lincoln and i therefore reproduce it here but the gentleman from georgia mr iverson further says we have deserted all our principles and taken shelter under general taylor's military coat-tail and he seems to think this is exceedingly degrading well as his faith is 
so be it unto him but can he remember no other military coat-tail under which a certain other party have been sheltering for near a quarter of a century has he no acquaintance with the ample military coat-tail of general jackson does he not know that his own party have run the last five presidential races under that coat-tail and that they are now running the six under the same cover yes sir that coat-tail was used not only for general jackson himself but has been clung to with the grip of death by every democratic candidate since you have never ventured and dare not now venture from under it your campaign papers have constantly been old hickories with rude likeness of the old general upon them hickory poles and hickory brooms your never-ending emblems mr polk himself was young hickory little hickory or something so and even now your campaign paper here is proclaiming that cass and butler are of the hickory stripe no sir you dare not give it up like a horde of hungry ticks you have stuck to the tail of the hermitage lion to the end of his life and you are still sticking to it and drawing a loathsome sustenance from it after he is dead a fellow once advertised that he had made a discovery by which he could make a new man out of an old one and have enough of the stuff left to make a little yellow dog just such a discovery has general jackson's popularity been to you you not only twice made presidents of him out of it but you have enough of the stuff left to make presidents of several comparatively small men since and it is your chief reliance now to make still another mr speaker old horses and military coat-tails or tails of any sort are not figures of speech such as i would be the first to introduce into discussion here but as the gentleman from georgia has thought fit to introduce them he and you are welcome to all you have made or can make by them if you have any more old horses trot them out any more tails just cock them and come at us i repeat i would not introduce this mode of discussion here but i wish gentlemen on the other side to understand that the use of degrading figures is a game at which they may find themselves unable to take all the winnings a voice no we give it up i you give it up and well you may but for a very different reason from that which you would have us understand the point the power to hurt of all figures consists in the truthfulness of their application and understanding this you may well give it up they are weapons which hit you but miss us but in my hurry i was very near closing on the subject of military tales before i was done with it there is one entire article of the sort i have not discussed yet i mean the military tale you democrats are now engaged in dovetailing on to the great michigander yes sir all his biographers and they are legion have him in hand tying him to a military tail like so many mischievous boys tying a dog to a bladder of beans true the material is very limited but they are at it might and main he invaded canada without resistance and he out evaded it 
without pursuit, as he did both under orders. I suppose there was to him neither credit nor discredit, but they are made to constitute a large part of the tale. He was not at Hull's surrender, but he was close by. He was volunteer aide to General Harrison on the day of the Battle of the Thames, and as you said in 1840, Harrison was picking whortleberries two miles off while the battle was fought. I suppose it is a just conclusion with you to say Cass was aiding Harrison to pick whortleberries. This is about all except the mooted question of the broken sword. Some authors say he broke it, some say he threw it away, and some others who ought to know say nothing about it. Perhaps it would be a fair historical compromise to say, if he did not break it, he did not do anything else with it. By the way, Mr. Speaker, did you know I am a military hero? Yes, sir. In the days of the Black Hawk War, I fought, bled, and came away. Speaking of General Cass's career reminds me of my own. I was not at Stillman's defeat, but I was about as near it as Cass was to Hull's surrender, and like him, I saw the place very soon afterward. It is quite certain I did not break my sword, for I had none to break, but I bent my musket pretty badly on one occasion. If Cass broke his sword, the idea is, he broke it in desperation. I bent the musket by accident. If General Cass went in advance of me, picking whortleberries, I guess I surpassed him in charges upon the wild onions. If he saw any live-fighting Indians, it was more than I did, but I had a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes, and although I never fainted from loss of blood, I can truly say I was often very hungry. Mr. Speaker, if ever I should conclude to doff whatever our democratic friends may suppose there is of block cockade federalism about me, and thereupon they shall take me up as their candidate for the presidency, I protest that they shall not make fun of me as they have of General Cass by attempting to write me into a military hero. After the adjournment of Congress on the 14th of August, Lincoln went through New York and some of the New England states, making a number of speeches for Taylor, none of which, owing to the limited facilities attending newspaper reporting in that day, have been preserved. He returned to Illinois before the close of the canvass, and continued his efforts on the stump till the election. At the second session of Congress, which began in December, he was less conspicuous than before. The few weeks spent with his constituents had perhaps taught him that in order to succeed as a congressman, it is not always the most politic thing to tell the truth because it is the truth, or to do right because it is right. With the opening of Congress, by virtue of the election of Taylor, the Whigs obtained the ascendancy and the control of governmental machinery. He attended to the duties of the Congressional office diligently and with becoming modesty. He answered the letters of his constituents, sent them 
their public documents and looked after their pension claims his only public act of any moment was a bill looking to the emancipation of the slaves in the district of columbia he interested joshua r giddings and others of equally as pronounced anti-slavery views in the subject but his bill eventually found a lodgment on the table where it was carefully but promptly laid by a vote of the house meanwhile being chargeable with the distribution of official patronage he began to flounder about in explanation of his action in a sea of seemingly endless perplexities his recommendation of the appointment of t r king to be register or receiver of the land office had produced no little discord among the aspirants for the place he wrote to a friend who endorsed and urged the appointment either to admit it is wrong or come forward and sustain him he then transmits to the same friend a scrap of paper probably a few lines approving the selection of king which is to be copied in the friend's own handwriting get everybody he insists not three or four but three or four hundred to sign it and then send it to me also have six eight or ten of our best-known whig friends to write me additional letters stating the truth in this matter as they understood it don't neglect or delay in the matter i understand he continues information of an indictment having been found against him three years ago for gaming or keeping a gaming house has been sent to the department he then closes with a comforting assurance i shall try to take care of it at the department till your action can be had and forwarded on and still people insist that mr lincoln was such a guileless man and so free from the politician's sagacity in june i wrote him regarding the case of one walter davis who was soured and disappointed because lincoln had overlooked him in his recommendation for the springfield post office there must be some mistake he responds on the fifth about walter davis saying i promised him the post office i did not so promise him i did tell him that if the distribution of the offices should fall into my hands he should have something and if i shall be convinced he has said any more than this i shall be disappointed i said this much to him because as i understand he is of good character is one of the young men is of the mechanics is always faithful and never troublesome a whig and is poor with the support of a widow mother thrown almost exclusively on him by the death of his brother if these are wrong reasons then i have been wrong but i have certainly not been selfish in it because in my greatest need of friends he was against me and for baker judge logan's defeat in eighteen forty eight left lincoln still in a measure in charge of the patronage in his district after his term in congress expired the wriggle and struggle for office continued and he was often appealed to for his influence in obtaining as he termed it a way to live without work occasionally when hard pressed he retorted with bitter sarcasm i append a letter written in this vein to a gentleman still living in central illinois who i suppose would prefer that his name should be withheld springfield december fifteenth eighteen forty nine 
Esquire. Dear Sir, on my return from Kentucky, I found your letter of the 7th of November, and have delayed answering it till now for the reason I now briefly state. From the beginning of our acquaintance, I had felt the greatest kindness for you, and had supposed it was reciprocated on your part. Last summer, under circumstances which I mentioned to you, I was painfully constrained to withhold a recommendation which you desired, and shortly afterwards I learned, in such a way as to believe it, that you were indulging in open abuse of me. Of course my feelings were wounded. On receiving your last letter the question occurred whether you were attempting to use me at the same time you would injure me, or whether you might not have been misrepresented to me. If the former, I ought not to answer you. If the latter, I ought, and so I have, remained in suspense. I now enclose you the letter, which you may use if you see fit. Yours, etc., Abraham Lincoln. No doubt the man, when Lincoln declined at first to recommend him, did resort to more or less abuse. That would have been natural, especially with an unsuccessful and disappointed office-seeker. I am inclined to the opinion, and careful reading of the letter will warrant it that Lincoln believed him guilty. If the recommendation which Lincoln, after so much reluctance, gave was ever used to further the applicant's cause, I do not know it. With the close of Lincoln's congressional career, he drops out of sight as a political factor, and for the next few years we take him up in another capacity. He did not solicit or contend for a renomination to Congress, and such was the unfortunate result of his position on public questions that it is doubtful if he could have succeeded had he done so end of section sixteen recording by vicky rands